continue looking at some major lessons from minor prophets, and we're going to be looking at the uh, book of Amos and continuing here. We've given a, an introduction to uh, the book, and uh, we're going to look at Amos and his message uh, tonight. And basically, going to look at first verse of the book. Amos 1, verse 1 says, The words of Amos, who among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, um, though the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah were headed for an inevitable judgment and captivity because of their wickedness, uh, there were some periods of great prosperity for both kingdoms. And this success seemed to lull the people into believing that, well, everything's okay. Uh, you know, sometimes that can happen to us. We can get in, uh, everything's going all right, and things are peaceful, we're not having any difficulties, and we think, well... I can just sit back and, and be at ease. Well, the northern kingdom had established its own brand of worship, which mingled idolatry with the Mosaic order. Uh, the people were outwardly religious and materially prosperous. Things were going well. And all seemed well in Bethel until a rough, blunt shepherd from the deep south arrived in the city and began to declare the coming judgments of an angry God. His name was Amos. He smelled like sheep, and he talked like a farmer. Now, we find here uh, a man by the name of Amos. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, remember a fellow by the name of Amos. And he had a partner called Andy. <laughs> Amos and Andy. Sometimes you might think of Amos that way. See, young people, again, I'm, I'm talking above your heads here when I talk about Amos and Andy. But uh, some of you might may, uh, remember Amos McCoy. <laughs> the real McCoy. Well, this is not either one of those two men. This is Amos of the Bible. But he was a, a prophet who was a country preacher. Uh, he was rustic of the rustics. Uh, he did not belong to the elite nor to the intellectuals when he went up to Bethel to preach. Neither his clothes nor his sermons were cut according to popular pattern. Amos, in my words, said J. Vernon McGee, was the country preacher who came to town. Amos was a unique man among prophets because he was what you might call a lay prophet. And contrary to the likes of Isaiah and Hosea, Amos was not a product of prophetic schools nor a religious establishment in Jerusalem. Someone has said from the backside of the desert, <clears throat> with a humble home life, with little or no education, Earning only a meager existence from his work with his sheep and fruit, Amos became a special instrument in the hand of God. The Lord called him, anointed him, and sent him out to preach his message. And 
Through his simple terminology, a most profound theology was proclaimed as he exalted the God of the heavens. So as we look at this unique prophet, uh, the book uh, that bears his name, we note a couple of truths. And we want to first of all consider the background of the messenger. The background of the messenger. Now when it's possible, connecting the prophets with their place in history and the sphere of their ministry always helps us to understand and interpret their work. Uh, In the case of Amos, the information he gives us about his personal background along with the people to whom he preached helps us to understand the nature and style of his unique prophecy. And so as the background of the messenger, we're going to note, first of all, his country. Here in the opening verse, Amos tells us that prior to his prophetic ministry, he was among herdsmen of Tekoa. The herdmen of Katoa. Now, Tekoa was a village situated some 12 miles from Jerusalem, six miles south of the historic city of Bethlehem, would have been a rural, out-of-the-way sort of village, inhabited by a few farmers, some shepherds, perhaps, and those who, uh, the, those who fed their flocks on the, the grasslands of, that were east of the town. It would be safe to say he was a country boy. Sometimes he might be known today as a redneck. Uh, to most people, Tekoa would have seemed like a God-forsaken place. But it's undeniable that at the very center of God's heart and plan was a man by the name of Amos that's going to be used of God. And Tekoa is located on a hilly ridge which overlooks the desert wilderness which continues down to the very edge of the Dead Sea and there would be wild animals that would howl by the night and by day the only thing you would see are, are the, uh, uh, the things here and there, the, the spots which uh, would be the camps of the Bedouins or the remains of camps, the wanderers, the, uh, those who uh, went from place to place, nothing but the blackened soft ground left by these nomads and vagabonds of the desert who moved from that area. Now, I understand today the nation of Israel has constructed a highway along the Dead Sea that leads to Masada. And the highway comes back through Arid and up through Hebron and Bethlehem, but it never really gets near Tekoa. I don't know if that's changed or not, but that's what I've read about it. Because Tekoa is over in the wilderness. Most people have never heard of it because even in its heyday, it was never more than a wide place in the road. Maybe you've known some places like that. There are a few maybe around here. Uh, It was a whistle stop. uh, A jumping off place. And even the word Tekoa means to pitch a tent. Well, tents are temporary. Camping. It's a campground. Uh, It was really the only uh, uh, country crossroads out on the frontier, so to speak. But it... It's like the fellow who said that to reach the place where he was born, you have to go as far as possible by buggy and then get off and walk two miles. 
Well, Tekoa was that kind of place. And it was the birthplace of Amos. It's really his only claim to greatness. Now, if we want to consider the background of the messenger, we not only want to see his country, but we want to see his career. Amos, by his own admission, was no career prophet or preacher. Uh, Back in chapter 7 and verse 14, uh, he says there, uh, Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Amos was a shepherd by trade. He also dabbled in cultivation of fig-like fruit of the sycamore tree. He was a man of a meager existence whose trade was necessary, but it was a disdained one. Amos reminds us, That God does not need men of education, does not need men of reputation in order to fulfill his will. A shepherd is often as effective a servant of God as a theological trained articulate son of a prophet. Now as you read through this prophecy you'll find that God used this rural background of Amos to stand out among the wealthy refined city dwellers in Bethel. His vocabulary, his figures of speech, and his illustrations are all fragranced of the country life from which he came. There was an unconventional bluntness about him which must have been pretty disconcerting to those so-called college-trained professional prophets of Bethel. And they would certainly feel a cold shiver down their spines to hear Amos address the upper-class Ladies of Samaria as kine or cows. They'd say, that's not very nice. But this was a rough fella, a country boy. Notice one other thing about this background. Not only his country and his career, but also notice his call. Now again, in chapter 7, is not... Now, much of the description kind of sounds like ridicule, and I don't mean to make fun of a man or ridicule him or keep, uh, say some things that uh, are not nice about a man, because he was one of God's greatest men, and he was a remarkable individual. You look at chapter 7 and verse 15. It says there, And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. God sent Amos all the way from down there in the desert and the wilderness up to Bethel, one of the capital cities of the northern kingdom, where he found city people living. And God called him to preach. God gave him a message, and God sent him to Bethel. Now, Bethel was at first the capital of northern kingdom. It was a place where Jeroboam had erected, Jeroboam I had erected one of his golden calves. It was a center of culture and also cults. People worshipped the golden calf and the head turned their backs upon uh, the calf and the head and turned their backs upon an almighty God. Bethel was a place that was sophisticated and suave people moved there. The jet set, if you please. 
Uh, even though there weren't any jets, there was a jet set. Okay? Uh, it was a place that was unmoved. It was shameless. It was also an intellectual center because that's where the school of prophets was. And they, even back then, taught liberalism. Bethel was a place with all the latest fashions and the most popular styles. If you wanted to find out what was happening, you'd go to Bethel. And there, there comes this country preacher, this unique messenger, and he comes to a place where he appears unusual. He proclaims a message that no doubt was unwelcome. And I think everyone who came to hear him at first, they probably said, we don't even believe you can preach. And they came out of curiosity saying, we don't think this man has a message. They came out of, uh, of amusement. They left in anger. He was a sensational preacher for his sermons weren't in the style that they were used to, the Bethel liberals, even though we don't have any record of those liberal sermons of that day. But you know what? Amos preached the word of God. Many people were moved. Some turned to God, but he disturbed the liberal element. Organized religion in Bethel, the worship of Baal and of the golden calf got together and they had this ecumenical movement going on there. So they had the same program. And if you don't believe anything, there's nothing to keep you apart. If you don't believe anything, you don't believe anything. And so we can get together. If you don't believe anything, that's what we call the ecumenical movement. And it's no different today. Now again, looking at chapter 7, notice verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10. says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos had conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel, and the land is not able to bear all his words. So they have this great meeting of all the religions at Bethel, and you could say it was the first meeting of the World Council of Churches. They tried to get rid of Amos. And this Amaziah cleverly, subtly worked a master plan. He went to Jeroboam II and poisoned his mind against Amos. And Amaziah got the king to support him because he believed that the church and the state, the religion and politics could be combined. Because that's what we read about there in verse 11. For thus Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Now, is that what Amos said? Well, that's what uh, Amaziah said that he said. But did he say that? We'll look back at verse 9. It says, And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. If you follow the record, you'll find that Amos' pronouncement was accurate. It, was, it is too bad that Jeroboam II didn't believe Amos because his grandson was later slain with a sword and ended his kingly line. And it was true that Amos had said something about the sword, and about something about Jeroboam, but he had not said that Jeroboam, 
Jeroboam would personally die by the sword. Amaziah was one of those ecclesiastical politicians who was twisting the truth, and that's the worst kind of lying. Now, again in chapter 7, notice Amaziah's sarcasm in verse 12. And also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. He is in effect saying, who told you that you're a preacher? Where is your degree? What school did you go to? Who ordained you? Uh, Where did you preach before you came here? Go, flee away, leave. In other words, he's saying to him, get out of town, get lost. And then Amaziah adds, and go there and eat bread. He's insinuating to Amos, you're just in it for the money. And therefore, you won't, uh, we don't want you here. Now, verse 13 is the crowning insult. But prophecy not again, prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. Very biting and poisonous. It is not surprising that such a prophet as Amos would encounter the court preacher Amaziah. This is a dignified clergyman objecting to plain preaching. And Amaziah is still with us in the pulpit uh, liberals today. Wearing rose-colored glasses, painting the clouds with sunshine, preaching peace when there is no peace. And Amos answers Amaziah's objections by saying in verse 14 and 15, Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I the prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now, we're going to look at that more detail when we get to chapter 7. We're not in chapter 7 yet. You realize that, don't you? We're still in chapter 1, verse 1. But suffice it to say that it's important to note that Amos was in many ways a missionary prophet. He was a resident of southern kingdom, called by God to leave his homeland and prophesy in the northern kingdom. And so in surveying his prophecy, we note not only the background of the messenger, but also the burden of the message. The burden of the message. Several of the prophets use the word burden to describe their message. Amos does not use that word, but you know what? His name literally means bearer or burden bearer. That's what Amos means. As Amos stood in the streets of Bethel, began to unload the burden of God, the burden God had laid upon his heart and in his unique style, he confronted the wicked northern kingdom with a message from a righteous God. And in his prophecy, we find Amos's message served a twofold purpose. First of all, it was to warn a sinful culture. To warn a sinful culture. And like his prophetic counterparts, Amos brought to Israel a pointed and hard-hitting indictment of their wicked ways. And though a form of religion was being maintained in Israel, it did nothing to counter the moral degradation of the people. And particularly, 
Amos points out the sins of social injustice and vice and luxury. He begins in his prophecy in chapter 1 by decrying the cruelty and the inhuman practices of the foreign nations that surrounded Israel. And then in turn he condemns Damascus and Gaza and Tyrus and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And no doubt the people nodded their heads in approval and said, Amen, as Amos dealt with their enemies. These would have gotten, things would have gotten much quieter when Amos turned his prophetic uh, uh, speaking upon Judah to the south. And then finally on Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and the remainder of the prophecy deals exclusively with the northern kingdom or Israel. Now, from ver- uh, chapters 3 through 6, there are some short Uh, discourses or messages in which the prophet predicts the coming judgment of God upon his people. And each one of these sermonettes is divided by the word, therefore. You find it in chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God. You find it in chapter uh, 4 and verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And then you find it again in chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, saith thus. So these are the division points of these messages. Then in chapters 7 through 9, Amos describes five visions. They're related to the coming judgment of God. These visions include grasshoppers and fire and a plumb line and a basket of fruit and God over the false altar at Bethel. An example of the type of wickedness that Amos prophesied against is found there in chapter 5 verse 11. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor and ye take from the hymn the burdens of wheat, ye have built houses hewn of hewn stone, but... Ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. And then in chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, you have the same oppression of the poor as condemned. He says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone? That we may sell corn in the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, falsifying the balances by deceit. And so against this kind of wickedness, Amos is speaking and predicting the judgment of God. And in his final vision, Amos is going to hear the, uh, hears the wrathful God say in chapter 9, verse 5, And the Lord of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt And all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up holy like a flood, shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And so the burden of the message in Amos is not only to warn a sinful culture, but also to wake a satisfied culture. To wake a satisfied culture. And probably the key verse then in this prophecy is chapter 6, And verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named 
the chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Prosperity in the land had brought complacency among the people. The people were enjoying their wealth too much to give heed to the Lord and his word. Again, it's been said one doesn't have to read much of Amos' prophecy to realize the luxury and the vice of the hour, along with their cozy winter homes, the rich built lovely summer cottages furnishing them with elegant ivory. The society was given to the festive life of banquets and parties accompanied with live music. And to this satisfied, indulgent culture, the blunt forceful and intolerant figure of Amos preached. There's no doubt the right man to point out the excesses and the vice of the elite urbanites of Bethel. Now in chapter 4, verse 12, Amos sounds the alarm to to this cozy culture in the northern kingdom. In chapter 4, verse 12, he warns, his warning was simple, unmistakable. He said, Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. And for all of Amos' Amos's thunderings, his prophesy ends with one of the greatest passages in prophetic literature. Just as God predicts the certain judgment of sinners, he also promises a future restoration of his people. Look at chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all of the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Amos was God's man, giving God's message. And simply because Israel was being religious on the surface did not guarantee that God would not judge their sin. Because of their rejection of his law, their deceit and robbery and violence and oppression of the poor. And if you look there in chapter 5, you'll find it was a day of false peace. In the north was Assyria ready to strike and in the next half century it would destroy this little kingdom and Israel was trying to ignore it and they were talking kept talking about peace but then notice what Amos says in chapter 9 verse 8 behold the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth saving that that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob saith the Lord His message was not a popular message. He warned that it was God's intention to punish sin. I want you to to notice as we conclude, in a society of relative ease and prosperity, we need more men like Amos to stand up and point out the vice and wickedness of our day. And though blessing is coming, those who have not prepared to meet their God through faith in Christ will not see the coming day of restoration. To whom shall we listen? Amaziah or Amos? 
Should we listen to men who want the bright side or men who are on the right side? Amos was unpopular, but he was right. And let me just add one more application. Really, I want us to really, this is what I want to zero in on as we finish up tonight. Something we think many times, oh well, I'm just a. You know what a just a is? Sometimes we're, we think that we're just, just a. We're just a salesman. Or we're just a farmer. Or I'm just a housewife. Amos would have been considered just a. Just a farmer. Just a country preacher. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't the son of either. He was just a shepherd. A small businessman in Judah. Who would listen to him? But instead of making excuses, Amos obeyed and became God's powerful voice for change. And God has used justas, such as shepherds and carpenters and fishermen, all through the Bible. And so whatever you are in this life, you say, I, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a missionary, I'm just a this or that. No, God can use you. Amos wasn't much. He was a justa. Just a servant for God. And I think it's good to be God's justa. Now, for those of us who went to senior saints this past week, we met a justa. Some of us have known this justa for a number of years. Some of you have known him longer than I have. But he was just a farmer. He's just a husband, father, grandfather. He's just a faithful church member. He's also been, for the last 40 years, just a faithful camp board, uh, Chatech board member. Elton Huff. He was our speaker. And he's not a preacher. He's not a prophet. But he gave a wonderful testimony this last Thursday about how God has used him over the years. And so if you think, well, I, there's nothing I can do. I'm just a poor this or that. God can use you. And I'm thankful for the testimony of those justas that we have in our church that are doing what they can to do God's work. Let's pray.